You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Dio, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. In many ways, I am and have been a mindless investor. Not mindful, mindless. But I've achieved this feat in two very different manners. At the beginning of my physician career, I thought I was too busy to learn about money, and it was too complicated. So I hired a financial advisor and did exactly what he said. Mindless. I discovered financial independence, however, and realized I was paying high fees to a glorified stock picker. So I dove down deep into the rabbit hole of investing. I uncovered broad-based indexing, bogle heads, and the simple path to wealth. I became very mindful about my philosophy and goals, yet I chose a simple three-fund diversified portfolio. That same portfolio I still hold today. Also, mindless. In his two decades as a financial advisor, Jonathan Dio has seen countless investors make decisions driven by fear and wishful thinking. That mindset leads to costly mistakes, but there is good news. These mistakes are preventable. In his new book, Mindful Investing, Dio offers a solution, a comprehensive investment strategy that integrates Western behavioral finance with the Eastern discipline of mindfulness. Jonathan Dio, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Your book is called Mindful Investing. But you make a pretty good argument that we should be actually mindless when it comes to the stock market. How can it be both? <laughs> I don't think I make the the argument that we should be mindless, but it's I do I do see your point. That's it's well spoken. So mindful in our reactions, right? That's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the is the non non judgmental awareness of the present moment as it presents through our senses and our thought patterns and our feelings, right? When we're mindful of investing specifically, and mindfulness works in all walks of life, but when we're mindful of investing specifically, we're being, we're setting it, we're building the the simple path, the simple process. And this is the Western behavioral finance, the stuff that we know that works, the stuff that the academics have shown us, the stuff that's very well proven and reproven and reproven and reproven. It's in opposition to the stuff that Wall Street and many, many, many advisors want to suggest that they can do differently. So we we bring this understanding and then we remain mindful of our limitations. We remain mindful of how we should be planning first. We should we remain mindful of, we should remain goal focused rather than market focused. I think that's the mindfulness piece. Yeah. I think in a sense, when I'm saying mindless, it's the idea that we don't have to spend tons of time thinking about it. And so maybe it's a misnomer. It's not mindless. It's that it's not occupying huge 
parts of our brain or we're not constantly doing something and changing and reevaluating. Well, and it's really, it's, it's like, okay, you want better financial outcomes. You also want a better life, living, feeling. And the, the time we spend managing our portfolios is wasted time. That's what the research tells us. So if we can take that time back and use it mindfully on relationships, our health, and it doesn't mean we have to, we can't build wealth with it. We can, we can maybe start a company, have a side gig. There's all kinds of other things we can do to improve our financial lives with that time. If we still need more money, still need to improve our skill set, whatever those things are, right? So there's, there are things we can do that we should focus on. The problem with the investing world is we are, we are pulled into this soup of market focus of, of we should make more decisions. And, and the more decisions we make, the more errors we make. The name of the book, Mindful Investing, and the use of the word mindful definitely reminds us of your connection, not only to the Western investing world, but to the Eastern philosophical world. Tell us about your connection with Eastern philosophy. How did you develop an interest in it? Well, his name was Marvin Shaw. Marvin Shaw was a professor of mine in uh, undergraduate at Montana State University. He was my favorite professor. Well, okay, I got to be careful. Jim Allard was also pretty amazing. But Marvin Shaw was incredible. I, I loved him. He's the one who introduced me to Martin Buber's I and Thou. He was my religious studies professor. Just so many great things came from Marvin Shaw. And I was going through one of his classes, Comparative Religion, and he said, Jonathan, you obviously love this. Not that I had a preference for Eastern versus Western, you know, Buddhist versus Christian. I just, I loved writing about it and loved thinking about it, all of it. You should go to grad school. And so I said, okay, great. I'm going to start looking at grad school, looked at Columbia, looked at Cornell, looked at, and there's this little school, Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, that has nine seminaries, a Buddhist school, a Jewish school. And then more recently, they've had to have a school of, of Islam as well. So it's, it's a really interesting place to come and study. And I came out originally to study Lutheran theology. That was the path I was on. And I, I, I drove up to the Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary and they said, they didn't give me a reason, but they said, you know what? We don't have your scholarship. <laughs> so, so sorry. Uh, uh, oops. I, I, oops. <laughs> oops. Exactly. Oops. I was like, I just, my van is in the, in the parking lot. All my stuff's there. My new wife is in the van. And I have to go back to her and say, listen, ooh, plans have changed. They said, but you could go to these other seminaries and ask them if they've got some funding that they can give you. I mean, the G GTU works together. We can figure this out. So I went door to door. I went to the Buddhist school and they're like, yeah, we've got some, we've got some extra funds. So I ended up at the GTU instead of with a Lutheran seminary with the Buddhist school studying comparative religion. And I sort of shifted towards Buddhism and, and practicing Buddhism and studying Buddhism, Theravadan monks, Tibetan stuff, Zen stuff, and just loved it. And then, you know, Fast forward a couple of years, my wife at the time says, you know what? It's my turn to go to grad school. And so I literally dropped out and started at Dean Witter as a broker. So explain that. Explain Buddhism to financial advice and being a broker. How does that work? It's sort of full circle. When I was nine years old, eight, nine, 10 years old, I had a buddy, Matt and I, we would be thinking about the stock market. We'd be thinking about starting a business. I was, I was raised with very little money. So I, you know, it was important to me to have money and to be successful. So I was thinking about money for a long time. My parents would go downtown Rapid City. I would go into the local, I think it was a, I, I have never really, I've never cleared this up. It's either a Linsco office or a private ledger office before Linsco and private ledger merged. This is 1980. 
and, and I was in their office and I was reading value line research. It came in a binder. It was on the guys, you know, on the guys uh, in the front table there. So I was reading value line research and I got really interested in stock analysis and all this kind of stuff. I did a lot of that. I bought my first stock when I was nine. You know, I helped my dad with helped. Like I bailed out the basement when it flooded in the real estate, this kind of stuff. Like, so, so I was, you know, I was interested in money. I was interested in investing, interested in real estate, interested in stocks as a young lad, as a very young guy. Uh, and then went to school originally and in, in undergrad to study business finance, got bored to tears with business finance and shifted over to philosophy. That's where I met Marvin Shaw. So it's, when I when I said okay, I got to find a job. I'm a I have a philosophy degree, and I'm a dropout in in a Buddhist studies program. Where's what's my job going to be? It's going to be sales. It, it has to be. So there's not nothing else for me. I don't. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a teacher. I don't have any. So I've got to be. I've got to do something that that can make some money. And so I I knew stocks and I enjoyed it. So I went to Dean Witter and they said, sure, you can fog a mirror. We'll hire you. So let's talk about what it felt like. For you, coming from a theologic background, someone who had spent a lot of time thinking about philosophy and the clash with the 1980s, Mm. 1990s brokerage culture, I imagine that that felt a little odd for you. Oh my God. I have, I have these little snippets of stories of things that have happened. I can, I could tell two or three or four of these pretty quickly. So there's this guy named uh, um, Keith. Keith was about five foot two. Uh, but he had the deepest voice you've ever heard. It was a it was a beautiful radio voice. It was a great voice, and he was the guy that sort of took me under his wing and told me how to cold call. And he told he gave me we we created these books. We had these books that were like the answers to the obvious questions. And someone would I'd be cold calling. I had two phones going at once. I was cold calling, and someone someone would give me a response. I would flip to that page. I would read that answer. It was just like pop 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 pop. It was very very quick. And you could get through and you could make $300 in a day. I could set four appointments. I could, you know, I could do the work, right? So we're doing this and Keith's phrase was, you got to work harder than anybody else. If you're going to, if you're for three years and you can live better than anyone else for the rest of your life. And I did it. I worked like 80 hour weeks for, for three years. It was insane. One Saturday I come in and there's the golden boy in the office. His name is Jesse. I'm not going to name his, put his last name in there because the story is probably not good to, good to share this way. I come in on a Saturday and it's, I'm usually the only one there. There's like three of us. I come in, there's an army and the army of people are shredding documents. I <laughs> kid you not. Like <laughs> right out oops, of a movie. Yeah. Right out of a movie. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Turns out this guy, Jesse, had been had been claiming, like when you fill out the paperwork, if you say somebody is an aggressive investor, that gives you the ability as an advisor to do more stocks and do more stuff that's like high compensation for you. If you say they're conservative, then it's bonds, not as much compensation for you. So he had papered all these accounts, even though the people were 80s and conservative as aggressive, and he was trading the accounts on the side. And so I was like, oh my God, that's so that's one story. Another quick story. There's a guy that I was in a cubicle, guy right next to me in the cubicle was two years ahead of me. He came in and he had like the yellow shirt with the white collar and the white cuffs and the cufflinks. And uh, his name was Phil. And he would say, well, you, you make a bunch of trades. Oh, I did my, I did my Gster for the day. I'm done. Like mm-hmm. he made a thousand dollars a day and then he, he would leave the office. And it was just, he could do it by nine o'clock, by 10 o'clock. He'd just call up 20 clients, trade 20 times, make a thousand bucks and he'd be out the door. But that's kind of stuff. It was just gross. And it was just, it drove me crazy. Off in the corner, kind of ignored by everybody was this guy, John Dickens. 
And I'd come in and I'd work late at night and John Dickens would be the only one there. He was like five years ahead of me in the industry. I'd go into his office. He'd have, he'd have this table on the side and the table would have like 15 financial plans just written out. And we're, we're talking yellow pad, you know, with some spreadsheets and stuff, but it's all by hand. There's no software that does it. It's all by hand. And they're deep in-depth plans. And John Dickens was like, no, I'm really taking care of my clients. So I was in an office of 200 people, 200 advisors, 200 brokers. One of them was this guy. So I had all of these people that were part of the part of the mix, part of the stories, part of the narrative in the early days. I almost quit, I don't know, three times. And the only reason I stayed in it was for because this my manager at the time, Ernie Guzman, kept pulling me aside and saying, Jonathan, you don't, you don't have to do it their way. You can do it your way. You can do it your way. I kept looking at John Dickens, kept listening to Ernie, John Dickens, Ernie. I determined I couldn't do it my way in that space. Like I couldn't do it at the brokerage world where I was calling, looking for software packages. And they would ask me, which firm are you calling from? And I'd be like, why does that matter? I just want your software. Well, each firm asks us to set the data in a, in a certain way. I'm like, what? Like, even if I'm buying an independent software package, it's got the firm's fingers in it. It's crazy. I ultimately ended up, you know, starting my own firm in 2001 and finally was able to do it the way I wanted to do it without sort of meddling and stuff. But I listened to Ernie, follow John Dickens' example. It, it all works out. And we're going to talk about your book, Mindful Investing, in a moment. But when we look at the culture of financial advice today, there are a lot more John Dickens than there ever were in the oh, past. Yeah. yeah. I, I, did, I did invent this idea, right? There are a lot more planners. There's, there's, there's folks, there's registered investment advisors. But there's, we all swim in this, in this world of markets matter. Performance is the thing we have to monitor. Performance is the thing we're trying to control. And in truth, we can't control that. And so we begin our lessons with saying we have to let go of this grasping for performance. And what the research shows us, this is the Western side, by letting go of the grasping of performance, we will get better performance. And that's the, that is the one message right there. Yeah, that you it keep on coming back to this idea of like the more you do with the portfolio, the more trouble you're going to be in long term. Yep. It's hard to grasp. It's this old, you know, don't just sit around there, do nothing, right? Like stop right. stop trying to manipulate and change. And it's it's a very uncomfortable feeling for a lot of us. Yeah, I mean the markets go up and down. That's what they do. I mean, it's just it's just the sun rises, sunsets. Tide comes in, tide goes out, markets go up, markets go down. It's all the same stuff. And if you can just sort of step back from all of that, you'll do so much better. Like one of my best coaches, this is what he says. He says, you, and and you know, in the book, I talk about the all-country world index and, and I talk about buying just a single thing. You don't need to buy three or five or seven and rebound. You just buy one and you're done, right? It's a piece of cake. Don't think about it anymore than that. And what he says was, my coach says, well, what about when you have, you know, Jonathan, when do you invest? And he goes, when you have money, you invest. When you need money, you disinvest. And if you have this one thing, it's just, oh, I have 100 extra bucks. I put it in there. All right. Oh, I need 100 bucks. I pull it out of there. It's, it's, it is so simple. It takes you know no time at all. 
connecting this idea of simplicity throughout the book, Mindful Investing, you pretty much give us these nuggets, these important points that are going to help us remain mindful investors throughout. And you do this wonderful job at the end of giving us these mindful reminders. And so I want to talk about them today as a good way to discuss your book in general. So let's run through a bunch of them. The first mindful reminder is understand what makes you happy and make a plan. You know, this sounds a little straightforward, but it reminds me of this idea that we often start in the wrong place. And I know I did this very much in my career. I really started looking at either net worth or how much money I had available. And those were the first things that came to my mind. Do we have it a little backwards? Well, I think I, I, there's an argument for knowing your numbers. That there's an argument for that for sure. But I think it that only matters. So why would you care about your numbers if you don't know what you're where you're going or what you want? And I think it, maybe it's just in our culture. Maybe it's Western culture. Maybe it's we don't spend a lot of time introspection in introspection. We don't really think about where we're headed. And I meditate, so that's my that's the way that's when I sit. But it's not just that; I also have a you know an annual program where I, I think about my values, my purpose, and my goals. And like every year, I I have a it's like a thirty page document, and I and I go through the document and I think about what's important to me now, what's changed. You know, my son just graduated from high school and he's now off in college. What does that change for my time spend around my house? What do I want my environment to be like? Do I want to have art? Do I want to be outside? You know, what what are the things that really bring me joy? And by doing that, by understanding that first, I know where I should spend my resources, my financial resources, my time resources. And when I know that, I know the trade-offs. And listen, there's so many people that are that are concerned about not having enough. They're just starting out. It's too hard. And, and, and I get it. It's hard. But when you establish the trade-offs you're willing to make, you know where to focus your time and effort and energy. And when you know when to focus your time and effort and energy, you will get better at those things and it will improve. If you're scattered, it won't, right? It, so I can't apply uh, uh, a solution for all people, but but I can talk to one person and say, hey, if you just focus on this thing that's, that seems to be really important to you, that you seem to engage and light up and it, it brings you joy, focus on this thing. Be really good at this thing. Learn more about this thing. The money will come like that. Will that it will come? Do most of your clients know what that thing is? Like when they walk in the door and they say, "Hey, let's talk about your fi- my, our finances," and they want to jump right into the numbers, et cetera. And you say, "Wait, wait, wait. Let let's take a step back. Like, what's all the why? What's this for? Are people in touch with what they really want?" Well, so uh, my clients, my clients are fifty plus. So they most of them have gone through the. The thing that they did wrong for a while, they've learned some lessons, they've come back around. And I run a, you know, my firm was called Mindful Money. My my education firm is Mindful Money. The books are mindful. So that attracts certain people that already think about this stuff, right? But does everybody? No. Some people refer their neighbor and their neighbor comes to me and, and we talk about it. And yeah, they're like, okay, let's talk about investments and portfolios. And I'm like, hold on, back up, back up, back up. Like, what's important to you? What, what do you mean? What's important to me? <laughs> do you like your work? You know, what, I, I ask about health. What, what's your, are you happy with your health? Your tightness relationships with family. Do you, do you have five really good friends that would help you move? That would, do you, most people don't like most people don't. And so they have got to go and seek it out. And that's honestly, that's, that's where the happiness comes from. That's where 
that's where we engage life and that's where the joy comes from. So if mindful reminder one is very philosophical, the next one you bring up is highly tactical. You say save first and fund your emergency fund. Let's talk about the emergency fund. I feel like it's a a really basic step. On the other hand, is it something people are missing and forgetting to do? Five years ago, two years ago, people didn't want to do it. I mean, people were people read it and like, oh yeah, I got an emergency fund. That seems like a good idea, but it's paying zero percent. Now, doesn't seem such a bad idea to have an emergency fund, right? So it's people are thinking about it based on a performance number, and I'm saying that we got to knock that off. I, I would, if it was paying me zero percent, and I knew it was going to pay me zero percent forever, I would still have six months of cash on the sideline because that's the thing that protects me from touching my portfolio when I shouldn't. Right. The point is we have investments. Those investments are long term. They must be long term. And it's not that six months is long term. Like six months is me. I'm working. You know, if I lose my job or I can't work or I get sick or whatever, it's probably within a six month period, I'll be back to it. Right. If you're retired, it's got to be two years. You need to have two years of cash on the sidelines. Cash, not a treasury bond, not it's cash. And the reason it's cash. Is because when the portfolio goes down 50%, you cannot take money from that portfolio. If you do, you will run out of income. So you need that two years of cash on the side. Yeah, it kind of drives me crazy a little bit when I hear people going nutty about optimizing their interest rate on their savings account, right? And <laughs> how much talk there is about high yield savings account. And I get it and I understand. But as you were saying, that's not really the purpose of that money. And it's transient. And people don't seem to get this, that it may be, quote unquote, high interest rate today, but that doesn't mean it will be right. tomorrow. And and maybe it doesn't make as much sense to spend all that time worrying about whether it's 2% today or 2.2%, et cetera. You, 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 we, you, we totally agree on this. It's, it's, it, the, it's brain damage to chase 0.3% on your savings account. It is just, it drives me batty. Find a bank that's got the bill pay system that you like, that has ATMs where you want them, that you like the tellers that are inside the bank. If you're a person that goes to the bank, find that bank, use that bank. You know, it doesn't make sure they're a good bank. You know, there's a lot of banks that do some bad things. Don't use those banks, but but just find someone that that it works for you, that the technology works. And go there, whatever interest rate they give you, that's fine. You're not, that's not where we're getting a return from. That's not where our performance is coming from. We are talking to Jonathan Dio and his two decades as a financial advisor. He has seen countless investors make decisions driven by fear and wishful thinking. That mindset leads to costly mistakes, but there is good news. These mistakes are preventable, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, 
purposeful cockpit like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We're back with Jonathan Dio in his new book, Mindful Investing. He offers a solution, a comprehensive investment strategy that integrates Western behavioral finance and the Eastern discipline of mindfulness. And we've been talking about the mindful reminders that you can find at the back of his book, but it really is a summary of what he talks about throughout the book. And we're going to discuss the third one specifically is to invest simply. Don't listen to the social media hype. This seems obvious, right? Invest simply is not obvious, but the don't listen to the social media hype part is obvious. Maybe, maybe not. What I was going to add to that or what I really wanted to ask about is, I think people intellectually can say, okay, there's a lot on social media and I don't know who I'm getting this information from. And maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. But there's also traditional media and traditional media has a lot of hype. Also, can we kind of say the same thing? It's not just social media hype. It's actually traditional media hype that can lead us astray too. I go, who's the target? Who am I trying to reach with the book? Like the people I'm trying to reach with the book aren't the people that are watching, you know, this five o'clock news, right? They're not people that are tuning in there. They're people that are absorbed in their social media feeds 24 seven. They're people like my son, my daughter, my nephews. And, and, you know, the dedication of the book is to my, is to my nephews. And it's, it's for them because when I was raised, like I just told the story seconds ago, right? I went to the broker's office and I read Value Line Research. That was the source of information 
It's a quality source of information. It's very well researched, very well presented. So that was what was available to me. I could also read the stock pages in the local paper that just listed today's prices. Today, the stuff that's coming at us from every angle is all a sales pitch. Everything we see all day long on every financial network, in every social media, it's all a sales pitch. And we're not recognizing it as a sales pitch. And so we have to learn how to think and make good decisions. Um, and the, the way, the, the only way you can engage this stuff, if you're not going to think and learn how to make good decisions and gather information from quality sources, is to make it very simple and keep it very simple and not get distracted. So the target of the book is people that are never going to hire me as an advisor. They're never going to have, they may, they may not have an advisor for 20, 30 years. Um, and we got to remember 95, 98% of the population will never have an advisor, right? There's, they don't have the money and advisor is not going to work with them. And that's the big problem is, is and I'm, how do we help them? Well, it's got to be books. It's got to be podcasts. It's got to be this kind of stuff. But so much of that is garbage. So much of the stuff is just, you know, it's just not, I mean, I think, what is it? 75% of investment books are real estate investment books. No, no problem with real estate investing, but what are they? They're selling books is what they're doing. You know, that's not successful real estate investing. It's book sales and it's class sales and it's, and we have all those things, but let's, let's do it the right way. Let's give them people, give people tools that they can actually use. Let's help them keep it simple. Let's help them live better lives. Is there any role or space for pundits and influencers? I mean, is there a way for kind of the general public to see good versus bad? Or, or is it more like, look, this is just going to lead you astray? There's a lot of, for me, there's a lot of entertainment value. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I have a good time with it. But no, there's, there are some great, there are great tools. There are great sources of information. I, I have a list on my website. There's a guy, Paul Merriman's got a list on his site. There's, there's, probably a dozen sites that I go to on a regular basis that are wonderful places for great information, but that's a dozen and there's 5,000 others. And then there's, and then on top of that, there's TikTok and there's Facebook feeds and there's all this other stuff that, and that's, these are just people that are emoting. They're just emoting all over us all the time. And that's not going to be beneficial. So we are talking mindful reminders from the mindful investing book. Jonathan reminder four is think long-term you generally talk about 20 or 30 years, right? The idea is that we put the money in the market, let the market do its thing. And this is something that takes time and compounding. On the other hand, like you and I were just talking about a little bit ago, you know, if you're going to use that money in the next six months or a year or even two years, then, you know, that might go in a different bucket and not necessarily a long-term investing bucket. What's that kind of minimum time period we should be looking at when we're talking about long-term equity investing? Like, is it five years? Is it 10 years? Like, how do you know? Because I know a lot of people are stuck in that place where they're like, maybe I'm going to buy a house in five years. Yeah. And so they don't think that money's going to be there for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I, that That's, a, it's a really tough question that, that, it, that it really involves looking at the entire picture of that person's, you know, deal. So there's, I'll, I'll answer, I'm going to answer the question two different ways. One, the Dalai Lama once said, when asked, you know, if you're going to try a new meditation, how long you should do the meditation before you've really given it the, you know, the old college try. And the Dalai Lama said 10 years. So you don't know if the meditation works until you've tried it for a decade. Okay. That, and that seems completely reasonable to me, having tried a few different kinds of meditation techniques. Ken French, 
who is the who is the, one of the co-authors of the Fama French, you know, three, four, five factor model, wrote the book on this type of investing, this factor investing, right? In French, he said that looking at the data, looking at the noise in the data, long-term starts at 20 years, hmm. which does that mean, and, and, and this is where the, the, that's the science. This is where the art comes in. So does that mean if I have, if I'm going to buy a house in five years, I should not invest that money? I would not say that that's entirely the case because there's some variability around the date of the house purchase. So markets zig and zag, that's what they do. So, but if, if it's five years plus or minus two years, then yeah, invest it, right? If it's, if it's five years and it's going to be in five years, then I might invest it for a couple of years. And I might, I might say, okay, I'll put it in there. And then two years from now, I'm going to start looking for an exit. And when it goes up after the two years, when I get a high point, I'm going to pull it out. So there's the idea is we know that markets go down on a regular basis. We also know that they recover within two, three years on a regular basis. So if you've got that window of time, you can write it down and write it back up. Fine. If you're not, if you're a person that's not going to be able to stomach that, don't invest it. Just don't invest it. So there's a it, lot of different pieces to take in, take into account. It reminds me of this idea that perfect is the enemy of good. If you right. have good investing habits, you're not going to win every time. And right. sometimes you're going to make some of these decisions where you just don't know, right? You don't know what's going to happen in five years and you don't want that money to sit around and maybe you won't buy that house in five years. So you invest it and you kind of accept that mostly when you're mindful, you're going to eventually have a long-term pattern of winning, but each separate investment choice and option, some will win, right. some will lose, but you'll generally come up ahead. We mentioned a little bit about this idea of volatility. And one of your reminders is that short-term volatility is normal. I think we mentally understand this. What are some of your suggestions for emotionally dealing with it, right? Because we know for sure the people who always lose in the stock market are the ones who make emotional decisions when the market turns in a way that they weren't expecting or or weren't prepared for. Right. So how do we cope with that, knowing that this is where we're going to screw up? I, I mean, I'd still look at history, but more important than that is, is just putting numbers to the percentages. We know that the average annual drawdown in the S&P 500, which is just an index and the one that most people use, so I'll use it here, the average annual peak to trough loss is about 15%, okay? 14.1, 15.2, depending on which study you look at. So what is what is 10%? Like what is it? If the stock market goes down, if the S&P goes down 10%, what is that? That's 350 400 points, right? So if it goes down 15%, what is that? Well, it's like 600 700 points. Oh, that's an average annual drawdown. Like if we if so if we're within that range, this is just normal. Right. And that, that's where the surprise comes in. It's most people are like, oh, you know, and, and and media takes this and runs with it. Oh, the markets are off, you know, 2% today because there's going to be a shutdown and shutdowns lead to global calamity and it's all going to be bad. Right. And, and so they, they, they spin these tails, but markets fell 2%. And, you know, how often do we read this headline that it's like, it's the end of the world because this happened. It's it happens all the time. So you have to learn how to ignore that, ignore the headlines, and recognize that 15% is normal. Normal. 
700 point decline on the S&P is normal. So we don't have to think about it at all. Okay, but that's the next, that's level one. Level two is what's a what's a normal like big drawdown? If that's an average drawdown, what's a normal big drawdown, right? It's it's double that, you know, 30% drawdown. What is that? That's 1400 points. That's and suddenly we're talking about, oh my God, that's a huge loss. Yes, it is. It's 30%. It's a massive amount. But every five years, that's going to happen ish. It's not a no clockwork, but every five years ish, it's going to happen. So we set expectations and we set expectations. And when I'm when I'm working with people, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's coaching people in a in sort of a group setting, we're setting expectations all the time. We just reset expectations. Where's that from here? Okay, we're at 3,500. Well, that could go to, that means it could be to 2,250. And we got to be okay with that because it's just normal. It just happens. Like it's okay. We, 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 and we, we message that constantly, constantly. So that's if I'm involved. Now, how does somebody just out there in the world, like, right, do this? You have to develop your own mindfulness practice. This is, this is, I mean, honestly, the, there's the, the history of behavioral finance goes something like this. Before behavioral finance, it was, we just believe that humans are mechan- you know, mechanical engines that make decisions with optimal information, right? And then, you know, Kahneman said, you know, and Tversky, Kahneman, Tversky, and you know, many others have said, well, it turns out we have a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of, you know, intellectual beliefs that don't really tie with reality and, and we've cognitive issues. And so we don't really think this way. We don't really make decisions this way. We, we make them emotionally and there's nothing we can do about it. And that's the, that's the, I disagree entirely. There's something that pe- we've been doing about this for thousands of years as you meditate. And we did this a better example. When my son was eight, he threw a rock on the playground out of anger. He hit someone in the face, no permanent damage, a lot of blood, no permanent damage. And the solution to dealing with an angry child is meditate. And just to because we create a space between anger stimulus and throw rock response in investing, we can create the same space between fear of markets declining and changing my portfolio. And if you create the space, you make better decisions. And the way to do that is with mindfulness training. I want to bring in the next reminder because I think it touches a lot on what you just said. Your next reminder is to remember the evidence. And and as you were talking about meditating and stimulus response, remembering the evidence is part of that space we create, yep. right? When we meditate and we kind of, part of it is that we tell ourselves, this has happened before. There's data out there. This is going to be okay. And that kind of stops you from then taking those actions that are harmful on the other hand, you also said that, you know, 90 something percent of people aren't going to have an advisor. So you clearly are knowledgeable. You can tick off the data and say, this is how much the S&P has fallen on a regular downturn, blah, 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 blah. Most people don't have an advisor, can't do that. So two questions, I guess. One is, are there a few pieces of evidence that your quote unquote novice investor should keep in mind just kind of to help them deal with these ups and downs? And then the second question is, how do we deal with that? statement that we get every time we do any investing, which is past returns don't necessarily mean future returns. Because as we're looking at this evidence and we're feeling good because Jonathan Dio told me that I can go look at the past and it can reassure me that volatility is normal, but we keep on getting the same message, you know, hammered in over and over again. It was like that before, but you know, it may not be like that in the future. 
So the, yeah, so piece of evidence, two parts of the question, piece of evidence, and then, and then, well, how do we deal with that, that warning, the warning label on every investment? So the piece of evidence, the, the most obvious piece of evidence that I can point to is the mountain chart. The f- very first chart that I saw when I joined this industry was the long-term, you know, 1915 to present day stock market. And what you what you see is you see a long, long, long series of higher highs and higher lows. You see the volatility. You see the zigs and zags. There's no no covering them up. But what you see is every every piece, every zig leads to a zag, leads to a higher zig, a little bit higher zag, a little bit higher zag, a little bit higher zag. Right. So it's it goes up. It goes up not in a straight line, and that's just the reality of it. Another second piece of evidence is. This is kind of harder. You have to, to, to seek this out. It's, it's more difficult, but but logically this makes sense. Why does it go up? It's not it's not like magic and people go, oh, stock market can't go up forever. I'm like, well, it, it can. And the reason it can is because it's based on real businesses selling real goods and services to real buyers in the real world and creating this thing called earnings. Earnings go up. That is why the stock market goes up. End of story. Earnings go down occasionally for short periods of time, sometimes really drastically. But then what happens? Well, then we find out I'm out of toothpaste. I need a new pair of shoes. My bulb went out. I want solar panels. I want an electric vehicle. I want new clothes. I want to look better. I want to lose weight. I want to go to the doctor. And so we keep doing the things that are profitable for companies. We're never going to stop doing those things. That's not going to happen. So profit is something that's going to continue. So there are places to go to get evidence that this will continue going up. Let's talk about the the, the warning. And let me interrupt just for a second before we talk about the warning. All of that presumes that you are well diversified. And I think that's a really key, it's a very key portion of the the up and to the right graph that we see when we're looking at stock market gains and market gains and industry in the United States and globally is everything tends to get better as long as you are diversified. If you're thinking you're going to pick a few stocks and get the same effect because companies grow and then die out all the time. It's all the, time. the market in general that continues yep. to. Okay. All right. After yep. we make that clear, I just want to make that clear before we go to the warning. I, I talk about it this way. I actually don't, I don't invest in companies. I invest in consumption. Like yeah. I invest in everything because people buy stuff. Companies buy stuff, right? I, I, it's not one company ever. Like, I don't care if it's Ford or GM. It doesn't matter to me. Like I own them both. So the, the warning label. So wh- why is the warning label there? That's that's the big question is why does that warning label exist? The warning label exists because somebody followed somebody's advice. They lost money and they sued. So now everyone puts the warning label everywhere to cover their own asses. Guess what? The warning label is on my site too. Like it's, like, <laughs> it has to be right. It has to. I, be. I don't. Right. I don't. I can't guarantee that the market will go up for the next ten years. That's not a guarantee. It's a belief, and it's a very strongly held belief. It's also a belief that squares with literally all the historical evidence. I can't guarantee it though. Like when the meteor strikes the Earth, it's going to affect the markets very terribly, and <laughs> nothing I can do about that. Right. <laughs> Right. So there are these circumstances, but if, if that ever comes to pass, it's going to be worse than the 
it's not the market that goes down that's going to be the problem, right? We're not going to have food anymore. Right? That's going to be the problem. So I want to zoom out and look at the big picture. You are a financial advisor. So obviously there is a bias there about financial advisors and the role they play in helping people manage their investments. But let's look at that age-old question, advisor versus no advisor. Any thoughts on who advisors are good for or not good for? Actually, I don't think there is a bias there. So I don't think that I don't think advisors add a well, I'll say any value in performance in portfolio management. And I think that the industry itself is shifting away from the traditional methods of paying for advice. There's a lot of people that are just more comfortable with the old method. And the old method is fine. I, I mean, I've benefited from it for a long time. My clients love the fact that I do this. Most people don't have access to advice. Many people have access but don't want to pay the fee. Right. Totally reasonable. I, you know, I don't like to go to the dealer to get my car worked on. I like to go to a mechanic that's outside the dealer. So there's that's because it saves me some money. So I think the best use of an advisor actually isn't portfolio management. And when you look at things like Vanguard's done a study, Morningstar's done a study, Russell's done a study, there's been a couple academic studies about where the value of advice lies. The investment selection portion of the value of advice is worth about 20 basis points, 0.15, 0.2%. That's what investment selection is worth. The thing that's more valuable is, and part of that selection is selecting low-cost tools, is not being pulled away from this ETF that's index-based towards this active-managed thing. So that's a, that's a value that an advisor can help, can support with. But the, the, the biggest piece is actually behavioral support. It is the person to call. It, it's the same person in the gym. Like, I really don't want to go to the gym, but if I have a trainer, I'll go to the gym and I'll do my push-ups and do my running and, and do the right kind of exercises and stuff because it's accountability. So an advisor can be that when things are scary or when things are super exciting. Like when Bitcoin is going up to $30,000 and people are really excited about buying it. And you call your advisor and your advisor goes, you know, maybe, maybe not. Like maybe that's not a good choice to use for half of your money. Or in the late nineties, I want to buy uh, Juniper networks, you know, instead of Cisco systems or, or I want to buy these four stocks because they're just aggressive and exciting. Right. So maintaining diversification is important and that behavior is important. But in addition to that, and what you see today more than 10 years ago is you see a lot of planning support. You see a lot of deep financial plans. So if you have a very complex situation, you own a, a bunch of real estate with lots of debt on those pieces of real estate, you have a business, you have just, or, and the, at the end of the day, it's, or you just don't want to think about it yourself. If somebody just wants somebody to do it for them, well, that's what an advisor does. Many people don't want to do that. Many people want to do it themselves and want to learn how, and that's, or don't have access. And that's why we write the books and have the podcasts. Well, Jonathan, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. As I think about our conversation, I realized that maybe in my introduction, I misspoke. The opposite of mindful is not mindless. When it comes to investing, the opposite of mindful sounds to be overly cluttered, complicated, and less value-driven investing. And what's clear from your book is that we can get rid of a lot of that clutter and focus on what's important so that we can make really good long-term decisions 
I want to end this episode the way we end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where we can find you. Let's talk about the book first. Is it available now and where can people find it? It's it's available now. It's in all of your local bookstores. It's also available at Barnes and Noble and IndieBooks.com and Amazon.com. And if people want to know more about you, what is the best way for them to interact with you? Yeah, go go to the website mindful.money. And there you'll see all of our all the courses, the the boot camp, and the the memberships are all there. Well, the book is Mindful Investing. Jonathan Dio, thank you for coming back on Earn and Invest. Jordan, thanks for having me again. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. The truth is I don't like talking about investing. And the reason why is there are two main things that I always argue with people about when it comes to investing. And even though I feel like I'm right, we never see eye to eye. The first is about complexity. For some reason, many people out there feel like investing in the stock market specifically in equities should be complicated. It's not as simple as buying an index fund and leaving it. It has to be more complicated than that. That can look in a few different ways. One is that there are people who are convinced that they should pick stocks. And I know you guys have heard this before, but it bears repeating. Usually the argument is, look, the S&P 500 index or the total market index is huge. And the truth of the matter is there's some real stinkers in there, right? There's some stocks that just do horribly. So instead of getting the index, buy the top 10 or 20 things in the index, but get rid of the rest or at least get rid of some of the big stinkers. This is always the argument And people always feel like they have the foresight, they have the crystal ball to figure out what those stinkers are going to be and what the stocks are that are going to continue to go up. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know. I don't want to spend all my time trying to figure that out. I really don't. And the other problem is a lot of times there's insider information we just don't know about. So Enron, Arthur Anderson, all this kind of stuff, we never know when there's going to be a scandal and a stock that was a prize stock that you had a lot of money in, is all of a sudden going to be worth zero. There is no way to know the future. Investing should be simple. You don't have to have a deep understanding of the equities market to know how to put yourself in broad-based index investing and tie your fate to the fate of the American market, in this case, if you live in the U.S., the American market in general. I think it's the safest way, the easiest way, and most importantly, You're not wasting all of your time studying the stock market. Now, for some of you, maybe that's your joy and passion. That is fine. But for the rest of us, who really wants to spend that many hours learning the intricacies so that you can either screw it up by stock picking and getting it wrong, or let's say you make 1% or 2% more, wonderful, but is it worth the time you spent doing it? I know for me, it certainly isn't. Maybe for other people, it is. So that's the first argument I always have with people, that we can tell the future and that investing specifically the equities market has to be complicated. I argue that it's simple, broad-based index, and forget it. The second argument I get into often is all about dividends. And it's tiring and painful to have this conversation over and over again. 
people are convinced that dividend investing is the best way to go. They argue that dividends throw off profits. They create revenue on a regular basis. And that revenue protects you, right? So when the market goes down, you don't want to sell your stock. But now your dividend-producing equities are giving you cash flow, and you don't have to cash out your portfolio if you have no other source of income because those dividends are supporting you. For some reason, people think there's like this magical thing where a company gives off dividends and that doesn't affect its stock price, right? So if a company gives off a million or 10 million or $20 million worth of dividends, that affects the value of the company. Eventually, it affects the stock price. And every time dividends are given out, the stock price goes down. So it's not like you're getting something for nothing. I don't know why dividend investors always feel like they're getting something for nothing. They are not. They still own the same number of stocks, but those stocks are worth less. You still have the same amount of money. It's just distributed differently. So what is a dividend stock? A dividend stock is basically a forced liquidation. What this company is doing is it's forcing you to liquidate some of your value in that company every quarter. And you are paying taxes based on this forced liquidation. So it's not like you're saving any money or protecting yourself from liquidating. If the market is down and you get dividends, you're being forced to liquidate a certain amount of that stock when the market is down. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. So dividends aren't anything that's beautiful or amazing or different than any other kind of investing. What we're really interested in is total returns. That's appreciation plus dividends. So these people who rely on dividends and dividends is their holy grail fundamentally seem to misunderstand money in general and this idea of forced liquidation. I have these two arguments over and over again, and I don't think I'm ever going to win them. But the truth of the matter is, I guess it doesn't matter. I can invest based on how I feel I should attack the stock market, and they can invest the way they feel they should. But in 10, 20, 30 years, I suspect that my broad-based non-dividend portfolio is going to do probably better than most other people's. All right, I keep things running just for a few minutes as we do the after show. Um, I feel like a lot of us could use Eastern philosophy and, and incorporate it a little more into our investing practice. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really look back at my own trajectory and investing never made sense until I started incorporating a lot of the things you talk about in your book. And, and for people who are still listening, there's a lot in your book we didn't talk about, right? That goes into actual investing principles. You talk about factor investing a little bit. You talk about broad-based investing. We didn't talk about that on this episode. But all of that seems so confusing to me until I got really clear on the simplicity of just what you said. Markets tend to go up. like, And so if we can just incredibly figure out how to invest in these whole big markets and then stick to it right and hold to our yep. guns and not get scared and sell off uh, you're likely to succeed and that yeah. blew that blew my mind realizing that like there's just some really basic principles you can follow and it can increase your chance of succeeding hugely it, it, so that I, just just two quick comments i mean one thing we have to admit is so the last two years 
that hasn't been true. And that's a really short period of time. Yeah. But not, now is when now is the moment of risk for people. Now people are going, uh, you know, I believed what people said. I, I just bought the market, but I've just been zigging and zagging for two years. I've gotten nowhere. I'm behind. I need to catch up. I'm getting closer to retirement. It's not working for me. Now is the point of risk where you have to stick to it. And I just want to keep hammering that home. Got to stick to it now. The, the, the second thing is, and I, I try after after i submitted it to the publisher and after it was like already down the down the path i wished i would have highlighted there's a, there's a chart in the back of the book where the very left column is the all country world index then you move over and it's that all country world index divided in one in one subset between the geography and then you divide it to capitalization then you divide it to small medium and large and then you add individual securities and so in that what I, I, I could have done better at pointing out that this way is complex, mm-hmm. this way is simple. So if you, the, the further off to the right you go, the more brain damage you're going to have, the more you're going to underperform, the more problems yeah, you're going to create, yeah. the further to the left you go, the easier it's going to be, the more you're going to focus on the rest of your life, the best. And I'm, I'm a little, there's a little bit of lost opportunity with that, that, that I'm upset by, but, uh, but uh, I, I think that graph does way more than I thought it would um, when I first put it in there. You know, when I take your message and I put it up to next to something that you also said, but but Nick Majuli in his book, Just Keep Buying, said a little bit more drastically. Like when I take what you everything you said and then just throw in and just keep buying like, yep. and just keep investing. I don't care if the market's up. I don't care if the market's down. Just keep doing it. And like when you That's put it. all that together, you have a brilliant financial plan. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Like yep. you. And again, as far as. As far as life is, as far as we can make a hypothesis of what life is going to be like in the future, that's the best you can do, right? So we, like you said, if a meteor hits and we're all like, and half the world is cremated and everyone has to live in poverty because the means of production have disappeared. Okay, we can't, we can't speak for that. But assuming, <laughs> assuming those big cataclysmic things don't happen or even we're under our control, because whether they happen or not, the question is, could you actually assess something like that's going to happen and then make a change that would have a material difference in your future? No. So given the fact that most of that is no, this is like iron, fairly ironclad. And I just, it it, it's, I would have never thought in my thirties when I first started having enough money to really feel like I can invest, I would have never believed any of what now seems so innately true to me. I, the, I think my, the challenge of that is, I think that a 30 year old today will also not believe. Yeah. And I was pretty savvy and, you know, I was very educated, right? I grew up with parents who invested like, I I was probably when you come to like ability to assess, understand and make good decisions. I was given everything as a kid that should have led me to a place to making the best decisions. And yet, and I didn't do so bad. I mean, I hired a financial advisor who actually did have my best concerns in mind. Yeah. Um, he did pick more stocks than index and funds, but he did diversify quite a bit. I ended up spending a decent amount of money on his fees. Yeah. But ultimately, it's not that he didn't serve me. Like I would have done probably worse on my own. It's just there was a way that was more efficient that I could well, have just done without. And, him. Yeah. and the and the I don't I don't know how the timelines align, but it could be that that was that the ETFs were available, 
but there may not have been other kinds of advice. You may not have had access to the same information you have today. It could today, have been the yeah. best thing you could have done then. Like it's that's, not, it's not nearly as easy as it is, to, as right. it is today. Like, like so easy anyone today. can go to Vanguard and just buy an ETF and it's like, boom, yep. like so yep. easy. And, and yep. whereas mutual funds have been around for a long time, low cost indexes and ETFs are, you know, are newer and more accessible than ever. Um, right, 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 right. You, you did you did the best you could with the tools you had. Yeah, and and again, it wasn't that I wasn't served by it, but what I wasn't served by was not understanding what was happening with my money. Right, and right. so what I even told that financial advisor at the time is, I need to do this myself now. And it's not that you haven't served me; it's that the only way I'm truly going to understand this is if I, and this was me personally, not everyone, just me. I needed to take over the reins and dive into it and understand it completely and and be driving things. You know, in a different world, especially where I remained busy in my practice, I could have engaged and learned more and still used that advisor and and been a much more active participant. Um, and that was so you, that was kind of a big mistake, I think. So I, I want to ask you a question. So you you do it yourself now, all of it? Yes. Do, do you seek out like hourly planning support somewhere? I don't. I plan to in the future. I have okay. not at the moment. So I have to admit, I've been a little bit lazy in the sense that we still have pretty aggressive, active income coming in. Yeah. So I feel very safe being broadly indexed. I mean, I have, we have long-term care insurance. We have a few things that we've really kind of protected ourselves. Um, so I've been a little bit lackadaisical in some of the planning that I probably should do, especially as I get to this point where my wife's slowing down at work, I'm having less income come in, et cetera. Um, but, so and I, I plan to, and I, I don't even, I don't rule out the idea that I may have a full bore financial advisor again at some point. Um, it's just in this season, I needed to kind of take over and take control and understand. So it just I asked because the, the the question you asked about when do you need an advisor, there's there's there are some ways you can manage tax. Yes. When you have yes. a high income. Yes. That many businesses, many business owners just simply don't know. Yeah. And you hire a CPA or, or an advisor. CPAs are they're they're compliance. They don't really do planning. Yeah. If you hire a planner, just hourly, they can say, Yeah, you need a cash balance plan. You need this, you need this, you need this. Yeah. And I did but all that when you did I all that. Was, Good. Yes. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 